Hey, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Regular listeners to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile will be familiar with BabaluBlog.com's Alberto de la Cruz, who joins us from time to time to talk about the multitude of human rights abuses in Cuba since 1959. But in my talking to everyday folk, I realize that either there's at best a vague knowledge of Cuban history, or at worst, an acceptance of the revisionist history often pushed by Hollywood or leftist ideologues in the mainstream media and academia. So Mr. Cruz is going to help us get hopefully a little better understanding of the story of our 90 miles away neighbor. Obviously, it was a a Spanish colony. The Spanish discovered Cuba. Christopher Columbus discovered it. And it was an island like, you know, most of the islands in the the Caribbean. It had the Taino Indians, which were closely related to the other Indians you found in Hispaniola, which is now Haiti and, and Dominican Republic as the Spanish were were wont to do. Um, I think Cuba, there's some geneticists that say there's some Taino Indians still left, but for the most part, it was basically eradicated off off the island, the whole Taino Indian. That's one of the interesting things about, about Cuba is that if you're from Cuba, it means you're from somewhere else. You're either from Europe, uh, from Asia, from Africa, uh, North America, but pretty much the indigenous population was was eliminated during Spanish colonization. Was it so outright that, just killing or disease or? You know, it was a combination of both, mostly the killing. Uh, the Spanish tried to convert them all to Catholicism. And one of the interesting or anecdotal stories that you hear was there was a Indian chief named uh, Hatue who had come over from Hispaniola to to help fight the the Spanish settlers and he was captured and and put on a stake to be burned and they gave him one last one last chance they tell him you know one you know here's your last chance to convert to Catholicism so you can go to heaven and his response to the Spanish was well if heaven is full of Spaniards I'd rather go to hell <laughs> so what was appealing to Spain about Cuba, why was it so valued? It's the largest island in the Caribbean. Its location geographically is is almost perfect. It's you're you're close to Central America, you're close to South America, you're close to North America. Uh, it had a or has a lot of natural resources, excellent weather for for agriculture. So and it was is a beautiful island. Up until 1959, sugar was Cuba's largest industry. It's that it was the number one moneymaker for for the nation, and it had over a hundred sugar plantations and sugar mills, producing somewhere in the in the range of anywhere between five and ten million tons a year. And now it produces about two million tons. So, and you're down to like a couple dozen sugar refine uh, sugar plantations now of course 
under Spanish rule, as seems to happen with most colonies, the, the natives start to feel a little either neglected or mistreated by the, the mother country. When did that start happening for Cuba? Yeah, that started in the 1800s, uh, mid to late 1800s, where you started to get very similar to what happened in the United States in the late 1700s, where, you know, taxation without representation, they come here, they take all, you know, you got to pay all these taxes, they take all their, everything you produce, and you're treated like second class citizens. So it basically built up and built up and several, uh, several wars broke out and battles throughout that time during the late 1800s and ending in the final defeat of the Spanish and the independence of Cuba. Well, so talk about the independence of Cuba. Like who was involved? Who had been the founding father, so to speak? Well, the main founding father, which is, they call him the apostle of Cuba, would be Jose Marti, who died in 1895 during in battle. But he was the driving force. And uh, of course, you had others that were involved as well, Antonio Maceo and, and other generals, people that were that were involved in it. But Jose Marti is considered the, he's sort of like our George Washington or the Cubans, George Washington. He had become for a while a political prisoner in Spain. Is that right? Yeah, he was persecuted by Spain. He was expelled from Cuba. He spent a lot of time in New York. He spent a lot of time in in uh, in Tampa as well. Is that Ybor City? Uh, yeah, in the late 1800s. He, he spent time there and then made his way back to Cuba and ended up dying in battle. So after he passed, who became the leader of that revolution? Well, you had several. You had Antonio Maceo. You had Maximo Gomez. But it was really when the Americans came in, Teddy Roosevelt and the and the Rough Riders, I believe, came in and, and kind of helped them defeat the Spanish is when they were able to finally achieve their independence. Now, I know throughout American history, there had been talk of making Cuba a state of the United States. What do you know about that? There was a push for annexation and just making it, you know, sort of like Puerto Rico. I know it happened and I knew there were people for it and there were people that were against it. Obviously, the people against it won out because it never did happen. But believe it or not, there's still people to this day that think that's the best thing to do is to just annex Cuba, <laughs> which I don't think in today's political climate would be uh, would be too popular. Yo I would say with my father's generation, their probably first memories of Cuba were of General Baptista and how Havana became quite a um, hot spot, almost like a Las Vegas uh, of the Caribbean uh, for not only the, the entertainment, the music, gambling, and all the sins that go with all that. How did Baptista and Havana, how did they become what Americans remember back in the early 20th century? Well, there's a lot of, uh, unfortunately, a lot of Americans, especially from your dad's generation and that generation, get their Cuban history from the Godfather too. Right. <laughs> and they think Cuba was this playground for for Americans to come and, and exploit the, uh, the poor Cuban people. Uh, the truth of the matter is in towards the late 1950s, more Cubans vacationed in the United States than Americans vacationed in Cuba. Wow. Uh, little known fact that 
kind of goes against the narrative uh, in Godfather 2. But there were casinos in Cuba, just like there were casinos. There are casinos all over the world. And they like to push that narrative and make it sound like Cuba was just a playground for American tourists. But the truth of the matter is, if you want to count just sheer numbers, the United States was a playground for Cubans because more Cubans came to the U.S. to vacation than than the other way around. And I, I, I could tell you for a fact, my family was middle class, a middle class family in Cuba. We, they were not wealthy. They were not blue bloods or part of the aristocracy or involved in government or anything like that. And my mom and my aunts and uncles would come to the U.S. almost on an annual basis, go to New York or come to Miami and for on vacation. So the middle class was pretty prominent in Cuba. You had a substantial middle class, my family being part of it. It it wasn't huge middle class, but the standard of living in Cuba in 1958 was higher than it was in countries like Denmark. Uh, the literacy rate in Cuba was higher in 1958 than it was in Spain. So you're not talking about some backwoods third world country that was being taken advantage of. Cuba had a, a strong economy. It had natural resources. It was the world's largest producer of sugar. And it was a modern metropolis. There's a reason all those late 1950s cars are in Cuba, because somebody bought them. They're, it's not like they brought them in afterwards. Those cars were all there. If Cuba was a third world country, you would have seen cars from the 1930s there, not cars from the 1950s. Based on what you just said, I know the narrative is, like you said, that Cuba was backwoods and there was like the ultra rich and then everybody else were, that were pretty poor. And that's how Castro so easily took over the island. So what is your family's true memory of that? Well, I can tell you my family, both my mother and my father, uh, they were born during the Great Depression or right before the Great Depression, uh, grew up in the Great Depression. Uh, they were born in what they call a campo, which we would say now would be, you know, they were hillbillies. They were born in, in the agricultural part of Cuba to very poor families. And I think this is probably says more than anything else. Both of them, they had never met, but both of them, when they were teenagers in their late teens, moved to Havana and made a life for themselves. My my mother went and started working for, for a bank and ended up going to college and getting her degree and achieving a pretty high position in a bank. And my father was a boat captain. They both made nice money and they met in Havana. They got married and were middle class or basically had, you know, a nice house, uh, not, not a mansion, not on the beach, but they had a house. They had their own house, had their own car. And they lived a comfortable life and were able to take vacations. And I, I think that says more that they were that the opportunities were there to better yourself if you wanted to. There's also a bunch of family that stayed back on the farm and the agricultural part. The irony there is that during the revolution, they're the ones that came out the best because they were out in the boonies where hardly anybody ever went. And nobody wanted to live there. And they could grow their own food. So while everybody was starving in Havana because they, there was no food, they were growing their own food. At the Civil and Military Institute, a program of discipline and health is inaugurated for underprivileged children and orphans. 
Obatista seeks to mold the next generation to a plan that is criticized by many Cubans as an attempt to regiment their national life. But none denies that social reforms have taken place in Cuba. Throughout the land, 700 schools have been constructed under Batista's orders. So let's talk about Baptista. You hear this sometimes that there was reform on the way, that there was a movement in, I guess it would be the equivalent of the parliament or the Congress in Cuba, to put a little bit of more of a check on Baptista and you know, to democratize things a little more and, and to uh, recognize limits on the government and uh, th- things of that nature, make it more of a republic. H- how true is that? H- how much am I getting wrong here? here here's the thing. Uh, Cuba had its constitution created in 1940 uh, that was ratified in 1940 that was modeled after the U.S. constitution, but they also added a lot more to it in, in terms of social programs and, and things of that nature. So the building blocks were there. The where the problem came in was Batista was originally elected to president. His term was over, and then he decided he wanted to continue to be president, and he did a, a coup d'etat and, and took over control. But he never dissolved Congress. You know, Congress still functioned, and there was still law and order. The problem was that you had a corrupt leader that was getting very wealthy and letting all his friends get very wealthy. Not the same, but sort of like like the way that you, what you see happening in Venezuela, where you know you have a national assembly and you have a congress and their opposition in the whole nine yards, but you have a supreme leader who's controlling everything else, and no matter what you say, he's going to continue doing whatever he wants to do. Mm-hmm. So that that was basically what happened in Cuba. And then the, the Cuban people just got sick of it. The thing about Castro was he wasn't the only one that was going after Batista and and trying to restore the rule of law and democracy on, on the island. There were several others that were doing the same thing. And the important thing that people kind of forget, Fidel Castro came out several times said, I am not a communist. I do not I have no intentions of, of ruling. I just want to get Batista out and we'll hold elections and we'll reinstate the 1940 constitution. And that was his whole thing. So that's what he told everybody during the whole entire. And that's why everybody cheered when he, when he marched through, through Havana in, in January of 1959, because they thought they were getting back to Republic. But one story my mom uh, told me that my mom and my dad were watching TV the night that he gave his when he marched into Havana and he gave a speech and they were watching it live on TV. That's another thing. As a side note, Cuba had the first 24 hour color television station in the world. Pretty good for a third world country. Right. <laughs> um, so they're watching it on TV and my father listened to, to Fidel speak. And when it was over, he turned to my mother and he said, Batista is a, is a baby in his mother's arms compared to this guy. And that's when he started making the plans to get out. He said, this guy's going to be worse. And so obviously the the elections never came. Elections never came. And all of a sudden he said he's communist. Oh, by the way, I'm communist. And our new friend is the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And that's when the, the killing started, all the people being lined against the wall and all that. Yeah, the killing started immediately afterwards. And uh, the justification was these are the people who were oppressing and killing the Cubans during Batista. But it just 
the net started getting wider and wider and wider. And then now, then they started killing you for being anti-revolutionary and then for being gay and for being religious and for, for speaking bad about Fidel. And it just became a totalitarian state. Now, those other guys that you said that were also trying to overthrow Baptista, what happened to them? They all got eliminated. Fidel Castro basically eliminated anybody who can challenge his power. You can think whatever you want to about Fidel Castro, but he was one of the brightest leaders I have ever met. And you know, the Cuban Revolution that kicked out the wealthy, Che Guevara did that. And then after they took over, they went out among the population to find someone who could lead this new nation. And they found, well, just leave it there, <laughs> an attorney by the name of Fidel Castro. Now, again, in the West, Castro and especially Che Guevara are romanticized as you know, the people's heroes and all that kind of stuff. So give us a brief biography of both of those guys, who they really were. Well, Fidel Castro was, was a thug, always was a thug from his University of Havana days. He was known as a thug. Interestingly enough, not one of the bravest thugs out there. Uh, he was known to, to do things, you know, beat up people he knew who he could beat up and, and shoot people in the back of, of the ones he knew he couldn't beat up. You saw it throughout his whole entire reign. His father was a Spanish soldier in the War of Independence, fought for Spain. And he was the son of basically the housemaid who was illiterate from the hills that worked in the house that his father got pregnant and him and Raul Castro and, and a sister uh, were children he had with her. She was basically his concub uh, his father's concubine. So he was an illegitimate. His father kind of treated him as such. And uh, I, I don't think he even let him use his last name, Castro, until he was older. That's interesting you say that so, because you hear a lot of these guys that end up accomplishing a lot, good or bad, and they always seem to have father-daddy issues. Yeah, he definitely had daddy issues. It, it was almost like he was trying to prove to his dad he was just as good as him because his dad hated the fact that Spain lost Cuba. You know, and speaking to some people that have studied it and they look at it from a psychological perspective that, you know, Fidel Castro just hates Cuba. Uh, he just wants to see it destroyed. Like a driving force, uh, unspoken driving force within him to just see it subjugated and, and destroyed, carrying his father's vendetta for defeating Spain. Che was an Argentine guy who didn't shower regularly. It's, it's interesting that everybody calls him Che, but they, they used to call him the pig in Spanish because he always smelled. <laughs> Just a psychopath, murderer, and another coward. Everybody talks about how brave, revolutionary he was, but when he got captured, the first thing he told his, his uh, captors was, I'm Che Guevara, I'm worth more to you alive than I am dead. He was photogenic and and he said crazy things. So Fidel put him out there to be sort of like a lightning rod and and portray a certain image to the revolution. And once he stopped being useful and started getting a little too popular, he first he tried to send him to to Africa, but 
he ended up surviving, and then he sent him to Bolivia, or he didn't survive. Yeah, I've heard that theory before from another Cuban exile. Fidel was very jealous how the people seemed to adore Che more than him. So he got rid of him. Yeah. But all you have to do is read his 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 diaries. He was a racist, a homophobe, nasty, nasty person, and, and a psychopath, just a complete and total psychopath. We'll talk about his anti-homosexuality and what he did, why he had the power to do it. Well, I mean, he helped uh, build the the uh, UMAP camps, which were the unit for military. I'm trying to translate it from Spanish. Basically, they were work camps, and they were sort of fashioned after Nazi concentration camps because they some of them had signs at the gates because they would take them out to go work in the fields and then bring them back in. And at the gates in the camp uh, had a sign that, that read, you know, work will make men out of you. They basically would round up the, the homosexuals and Jehovah Witnesses were another one that were persecuted and Catholics, people that were would not swear allegiance then to the regime or that they considered to be deviants, sexual deviants. And they were put in these work camps to, to basically either straighten out or kill you. When we got on that plane, we died. Arrived here as new people. Very sudden. Uh, it's not just our childhood that died. It's our, our ties to our family. And we came here, we had to instantly become new people. In very strange circumstances, you know, for, for children, even teenagers. I think now that I've had teenagers, even more so for teenagers. To have to be reborn without your parents there is quite a challenge. I'm going to jump around a little bit in history. Let's talk about the Operation Peter Pan. The Operation Peter Pan was was put together by the Catholic Church in Cuba with help from the uh, Catholic Church in the U.S. And what was happening was with the new alliance with the Soviet Union and trying to turn Cuba or they did turn it, but in the process of turning Cuba into a, a satellite state of the Soviet Union, what the Castro regime started to do was getting children and sending them to to the Soviet Union to be educated and taking the children away from their parents and, and indoctrinating them. It already started happening on the island. All the children were forced to do these work camps where they would be taken out to go work in the fields and be indoctrinated. So what the Catholic Church, since they wouldn't let the parents out, um, what the Catholic Church said, you know, at least we can get the children out and they won't be indoctrinated until the parents can get out. So they started transporting, giving people the option to, you know, bring your children and we'll get them to the United States and we'll watch over them until you can get out. In all, it was about 14,000 kids that were sent during the Pedro Pan operation. Physically, how did they accomplish that? Was it by airplane? By airplane. Mm -hmm. No, and the Castro regime let it happen because they knew how physically painful it was for the parents. They saw it as as one story I heard was that, uh, I think the term was, anything that, that destroys the bourgeois family brings a smile to our face. I guess a lot of the parents never did get to America. Is that how it goes? Or some did, some didn't? Some did, some didn't. I don't know the exact number of how many were able to, to make it over. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would probably say a lot of them did. 
but it was it was rough. It was difficult. I'll give you, uh, for instance, in the 1960s, if you wanted to, to get out of Cuba, you had to go work. Uh, you had to give a year's worth of work to the state. That would mean you would go for a year cutting sugarcane for no pay. And after you did that year, then you would be given permission to leave. So a lot of people, if they didn't have a, a family to back them up or a way to feed their families, they couldn't do that. I know people that, you know, had extended family that they could leave their wife and their children with and went and cut sugarcane for a year and living in deplorable conditions just to be given the permission to to leave the country. You know, a lot of that played into the inability of, of the parents getting out. So one of those children wrote a couple of books, both about his life in Cuba, uh, I guess, during the revolution and then eventually his life in America as almost like an orphan, he and his brother, uh, Carlos Air. Can you talk about him a little bit? Yeah, Carlos is happens to be a good friend of mine, and he's a professor of religious history at Yale University, and he wrote uh, his first book, which was Waiting for Snow in Havana, was about his journey uh, in the Pedro Pan exodus, uh, leaving Cuba and coming to the United States. He then wrote a follow-up book, on that called Learning to Die in Miami. And that was basically picked up where the other one left off, which was his his life here after arriving. But his first book, Waiting for Snow in Havana, won the National Book Award. And and uh, if any of your listeners haven't read it, it's 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 a marvelous. Both books are are spectacular, but Waiting for Snow in Havana is is an incredible book and Carlos is a great, great writer. It's sad and whimsical at the same time. It's it's just he, he he's a great storyteller. And it's a very interesting story of, of what he went through. I, I think I've told you this before, but ever since I read Waiting for Snow in Havana, every time I see a lizard now, I think of Carlos mm-hmm. Ayer. Yeah, and he still hates him. I think one interesting fact was that when he went to Miami, he and his brother they were taken in by a Jewish family, and I believe they have been Holocaust survivors. Is that correct? I don't remember if they were uh, Holocaust survivors or or their parents were Holocaust survivors. But he, his first stay here, he was um, with that Jewish family, and it was and it was great. They were a wonderful family, and they took really good care of them. If I remember the story correctly, the wife got pregnant, and they just couldn't deal with a baby and two foster kids in their house, so. They ended up being sent to a foster home, which turned out to be a, uh, a very bad experience for him and his brother. But eventually his mom was able to come to the America, and I guess he never did see his dad again. His father refused to leave. Then he got sick. He never saw his father again. Eventually, after spending time in the, in the foster home here in Miami, uh, an uncle of his that had come to the U.S. and had been sent to Chicago because a lot of Cubans were also sent to Chicago. He was able to join his uncle. Him and his brother were able to join his uncle in Chicago, and that's when his mom was finally able to get out, and they reunited in Chicago. I have one thing to add uh, about the sort of the interfaith dimension of the Pedro Pan experience. I was taken in by a Jewish family here in Miami, Lewis and Norma Chait. My brother was taken in by another Jewish family, Carol and Sidney Rubin. They forced us to go to church on Sunday. I was so happy when I found out I was with a Jewish family. I said, oh, good, now I don't have to go to church. 
But they, they forced me to go to church and they, they, they gave us money to put into the basket and my brother and I were very tempted, of course, to keep that. And then when we finally got to Illinois, it was Methodists and Presbyterians who helped us out. And it was wonderful. And they, they never made any attempt to, to change our faith or religion or anything like that. They were just eager to help. And I think that's, that's the beauty of this country and the way in which people of different faiths he comes here every every so often for a conference or for an event, and we usually always make time to get together and, and talk. He, and uh, I actually got to spend some time with him a couple years ago. I, when I was up near his his home in New Haven, Connecticut, out there by Yale University, and got to spend a day with him over there. He loves coming to Miami because it's he, he sort of like recharges his Cuban batteries, <laughs> as you can you can imagine being a uh, a Cuban in, in New Haven, Connecticut, right. you you sort of feel isolated. Sure. So he likes to come here and just breathe in all the Cubanness that's down here in Miami just to just to recharge. Mamá nunca nos dijo cuál había sido la razón por la que su papá había venido a Cuba. Pero eh, fue en épocas muy remotas. Vivieron en no en la ciudad de La Habana, sino en provincia. On your Babalu blog, there was an article about the Chinese population in Havana, I believe it was. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Because I don't think it, most people would ever think like, oh, there's Chinese in Cuba. There were a lot of Chinese in Cuba. Uh, what ended up happening when a lot of African slaves were brought to, to Cuba to cut sugarcane during the 16, 17, 1800s. And when slavery was abolished in Cuba, the now emancipated black slaves didn't want to cut sugarcane anymore, even if they were paid. And they didn't have enough workers to cut sugarcane. And this is the 1800s, so, you know, there was no automated machines. You basically sent people out there with machetes to cut sugarcane and load it up on trucks. And what Cuba ended up doing was bringing in all these Chinese workers that were willing to cut sugarcane if you paid them. Uh, very similar to what you saw in, in the 1800s in the U.S. with the railroads, where you they brought in Chinese labor to build it because they couldn't find enough people to work it. It was the same. So you had a pretty large Chinese population in Cuba and created their own Chinatown. And, of course, Chinese culture is an industrious culture, and they started their own businesses and you know made lives for themselves. And the revolution took all that away from them. So a lot of them left. And so very few are, very few Chinese are left in, in Cuba. The same with the Jewish population that basically fled Cuba after, after the, the communist revolution. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. In growing up here in Miami, there were a lot of what we would call Cuban Chinese restaurants. And <laughs> well, you would have, you know, like a typical Cuban dish, a, a typical Cuban meat, like, you know, what we call a uh, bistec de palomilla, which is a, a very, the very thin steak that that Cubans eat. And you would have it served with, with fried rice <laughs> and wonton soup. <laughs> and, you know, the menus would be in, in Chinese and Spanish and the waiters and waitresses and the cooks and the owners, they, they were Chinese Cubans. Mm. So basically you get this mix of Cuban and Chinese food that they would be serving and they there's still a few of them around here in Miami. That was one of the interesting 
things where kind of growing up, I thought all Chinese restaurants also served, you know, fried plantains <laughs> <laughs> until I got older and realized that they're not all fried plantains is, is not uh, universal. I wanted to ask about your blog, babalublog.com. And of course, y'all are always watching what's going on in Cuba and other dictatorships. Recently, y'all somehow ended up on Twitter's radar and were shut down for I don't know how long it was. You want to talk about that? Yeah, uh, we still haven't received an explanation, and I don't think we ever will from Twitter. For but for about ten days, uh, Twitter blocked us, blocked any links to Babalu on on the Twitter platform. Repeated attempts to to try to get an answer as to why we never received a response to it. But eventually, it came back on, and I think mainly when I started making noise about it and it started getting picked up by by voices bigger than mine on Twitter causing a little bit of commotion, then all of a sudden it came back on. But it's par for the course on Twitter. Now, is Twitter trying to work with the Cuban government? As far as I know, they, uh, I don't know of, the, of any direct work with them. I know they allow the Cuban government to have their Twitter fees and they verify them. And Whoa. you have you know Cuban government officials tweeting. Other than like you know what Google is doing and, and working directly with the Cuban government, that, not that I know of. Okay, well, hey, thank you for your time again. No, my pleasure, Tim. Thank you for having me on. If you'd like to learn more about Cuba, for sure check out the website, babalublog.com. In addition to former episodes of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile featuring Mr. Cruz, including numbers 168, 153, 139. Or if you'd like to hear more about Chinese diaspora, 171 is a good one featuring a woman who made her way from Tianjin to the great Commonwealth of Kentucky. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 